five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, I'm bringing you a kidney warrior story. Now there's always something you can learn from someone's story, something that can bring inspiration and hope. My guest today from Essex, England is Ali Lawrence. Ali shares her story of being diagnosed with stage 3 kidney disease whilst in her mid-20s, later going on to having home peritoneal dialysis, overcoming challenges including peritonitis, missing out on receiving a transplant and the lessons she has learned along her kidney warrior journey. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Ali? I'm doing really well, Dee. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. And as always, everyone knows I love recording <laughs> kidney yeah. warrior stories. You know, as I always say, learning from people's lived experience is so powerful. So I'm really looking forward to our interview. Oh, yeah, me too, Dee. I mean, I remember when I first came across your podcast um, last year, I was just so excited to think how wonderful it was that there was somebody out there just talking about kidney disease and telling people's stories. So, yeah, I was really, really pleased to be invited. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Right. So my first question is, how did your kidney warrior journey begin and how were you diagnosed? Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it, yeah, it was really innocuous, you know, Dee. It's, I went to join my company gym about 20 odd years ago when I was in my mid-20s. Went along and as, you know, usually they would just make sure that you're healthy. So they said, let's just do your weight, your blood pressure, your BMI and we'll get you going. And I thought, fine. And then he, the guy said, oh, well, you, your blood pressure's pretty high for somebody who's like 26. And I said, okay, uh, is that okay? Tell you what, go and see your GP, just get checked over and let's get a letter from your GP to say, Alison is fine to work out with us and that'd be great. So went to my GP, you know, went along, explained what had happened and said, and then fully expecting to him say, yeah, here you go, you're fine, here's a letter. And that didn't happen. What did happen was that he said, right, well, okay, this is, yeah, not good, but we need to find out what the cause of this high blood pressure is. So he said, so he sent me off, referred me to a cardiologist, sort of specialist, had lots of chest x-rays and other ECGs and things like that. The good news was that that was all fine and they, they found that my heart was not the cause of the high blood pressure. But then was referred to a nephrologist, and I'd never heard of a nephrologist before, and then found out that what I didn't know is that high blood pressure can be caused by the kidneys. So and at that point, the nephrologist had tests and stuff, and then basically got diagnosed with secondary hypertension and also chronic kidney disease stage three. 
which I think at the time I was one of probably about 40% function, you know, and this was somebody, and I'm a person who never smoked, very light drinker, exercised, my weight was always fine, looked after myself, ate healthy food, had no signs of what you would expect to have, you know, I looked healthy, I was, you know, so it was, that was like, oh, okay, that was, that was really weird, so yeah, so that was basically how it started and how I got diagnosed. And then literally for the next couple of decades, I had a pretty normal life, was given blood pressure medication to keep that managed, some water tablets and everything. And, and literally and then for the next 20 years, everything was fine. And then, you know, went for the occasional checkup. But that was really it. I mean, we even about a year or two after I was diagnosed, we moved to South Africa, lived in South Africa for three years. And then, you know, did loads of travel, which was a big part of our lives. And it's really only in 2018 where my, you know, my kidney function really dropped. Even though I was feeling healthy and great, you know, it dropped. And then basically that's when we started the conversations about, you know, renal replacement therapy, as, as the doctors like to call it, or as we know it as is, you know, a transplant or in the meantime, dialysis. So, yeah, that was, yeah, 2018 was probably the sort of, big year for me for when it really became a, a reality. So going back to when you were diagnosed, yeah. as you said, in your mind, you were living a healthy lifestyle. There was no signs or yep. symptoms whatsoever. So it must have been a real shock to your system to find out that yes. you had kidney disease. So yes. when you were diagnosed did you understand the seriousness of kidney disease had that reality set in at that time I think at the time I probably thought I did but I think now in retrospect I've realized that I probably downplayed it a bit because I was probably a lot in denial and I think maybe with my 26 year old brain I was thinking Oh, well, you know, 40%. I know it's not great, but we've called it early, you know, or we've called it a point where it, it can, you know, and I, I probably thought in my mind, oh, I've been given the medication to keep things. And I just thought, oh, that's fine. You know, we can keep my kidney function at an even kill. And had no thoughts about ever being on dialysis or having to have a transplant. So I don't think I really understood the seriousness until probably about five years ago where my nephrologist said to me I probably got to about 30% function and he said oh let's get you some literature about kidney transplants and it's like wow okay oh I didn't even think that was going to have to happen so yeah I don't think when I was first diagnosed I really knew the, the magnitude of what could potentially lie ahead definitely. So from what you're saying you had a good amount of years where you just lived a normal life, really, just yeah. travelled, did yeah. what you wanted to do. Nothing yeah. essentially changed. I mean, did you, with that in mind, were there any changes that you made to your diet or did you just, aside from the medication, did you just carry on as normal uh, or were there any changes that you made over that time? There, I think there definitely was. I mean, one thing was keeping my salt input low, but that actually wasn't too difficult because me and my husband I mean I'm really lucky because Phil my husband loves cooking and is really good at it so I think we can cook everything from scratch you know so 
it's easy enough to sort of adapt things and not put salt in the food. It's more about spices and herbs and fresh flavors and stuff, which is great. So that that was actually quite good. But it was more like, you know, going to the supermarket and then you do have to really look at two products and think, right, I have to make a decision about this one versus this one because this one's got twice as much salt as that one. So there's things like that. And I think also maybe trying to reduce my stress, look after myself better, because I think all that contributes, doesn't it, really? Just like absolutely, you know, being mindful, relaxing, doing yoga, things like that. I think being out in nature, walking, things like that, I think that's when it really kicked in that that had to be done for my mental and physical well-being, you know. So, no, definitely those are the things that I definitely made some step changes and then again over the years as time's gone on more changes to diet cutting down on fluids when I needed to things like that so there was definitely some big times when I had to make some big changes to how I lived. So it sounds like even though you said the seriousness hadn't hit you you still made some really sensible and wise changes to your your diet and your lifestyle and I think that really is important because you know there are things that we can do us as kidney warriors can do to help ourselves and it is important and fortunately this carried you quite a long time really so there was a good 20 years yeah 20 yeah and I think I feel because that again it's when you hear other people's stories it's so powerful it also makes you appreciative of your own situation because I know of people, I'm sure there's people that you've spoken to, Dee, who have lost their function like overnight or within a few weeks or months. And it's like, wow, that's so tough. Because I think the doctors yeah. have said to me that if it's taken so long for my kidney function to drop, it's almost as if my body's become acclimatized to it, you know? Yeah. But I think maybe the flip side of that would be good is that when I do eventually have my transplant and I go back from I'm currently 5% function, go back to like maybe 40 or 50 or 60%. I'll be like, yes, I feel like a superhero. <laughs> I'll just be like, you know, running marathons and stuff like that, you know. But I think because I've had that, it's just like dropped so minusculely over time. My body's just acclimatized to it. So I feel, you know, if you can take any comfort from anything, it's, I feel very grateful for that, you know. Definitely, definitely. I can definitely relate to what you're saying because when people see me do exercise or whatever, that, that see me on um, social media, yeah, and I say that, you know, my function is in the 20s and they're like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm just, you just get on with yeah. it. You just yeah. get used to it. And yeah. I just think that the human body is just so amazing and so resilient that even... Yeah in the face of losing a significant amount of function, you know, people mm. are able to live healthy, normal lives. It, it really is incredible it um, is. what people is. achieve. So you lived that time living a normal life and then you said that your kidney function suddenly dropped. Mm. So was there a trigger for that or was it literally out of nowhere? I have my own sort of thoughts about how it happened. I did have a really bad chest infection for a lot a lot of months and I feel like that probably 
was contributing to it. I mean, I think the biggest drop was I think it went from, say, 25% to 18 over the course of six months. And then basically that was probably the biggest drop I remember. And then I think over, and then from that point onwards, it would drop a percent every couple of months until I got to about 15%. And that was when it was like, okay, Adam Brooks said, who were my transplant centre, said, okay, we'll get you worked up for the transplant list, which took about, in the end, about six months. And, you know, let's start having conversations about what you want to do for dialysis. So I feel like maybe the chest infection maybe contributed to it, but, you know, it's like sometimes the doctors say it was just one of those things, you know, or it could have been that I remember looking back and thinking I was quite working quite hard and enjoying my job, but it was a bit stressful. I was commuting to London and stuff like that. And I think, you know, maybe in retrospect, I feel that I was trying to do too much and actually maybe, and even though eventually I decided to, you know, move my business, change what I was doing and, and run a business from home. So I had the chance for rest and not to have to commute and things. I think I probably could have done it a lot sooner and, and put myself, maybe the less stress that I went through would have been better. And I maybe I could have held on to a bit more function a bit longer, but, you know, but maybe again, it's just one of those things. Well, this is it. I mean, ultimately, sometimes it just happens. It isn't because yeah. of anything that you have done or haven't done. Mm. It's one of those unfortunate things that happen in life. And um, I would hate for anyone listening to be sitting in and for yourself to be blaming yourself for loss of function, because unfortunately, you can do absolutely everything right. And yet something goes wrong. So I really don't want anybody thinking, you know, I've done this to myself. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. You know, you're right. I think that's probably there's a lot of stuff that goes on in your mind when you're a kidney patient. And I think you just really need to be kind to yourself. Yes. And, you know, as a kidney patient, you do lose a lot of control. And that could be worrying and frightening, particularly if you're used to being somebody who's in control. And I, I'm i a very sort of, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm the sort of person that I'm very solution orientated. So it's almost like if there's a problem, I want to find a solution. And sometimes that's great, but sometimes you can like you can blame yourself for things and thought, oh, if I hadn't only I hadn't done that or whatever. It's like, but you need to be kind to yourself, as I say, and realize that there are things that you can't control, but then there are things that you definitely can control. Absolutely, and that that all links, I think, into something that I know you've mentioned in some of your podcasts I've listened to recently. It's a big word for me because of a acceptance. Yes. And I think acceptance is so important. And part of that is realizing, yep, there's things, you know, my life isn't working out how I really expected it to be. But there are things that I can do that I can control, you know, by realizing what those things are, it makes things so much easier. And yeah, I think realizing that you can control things and then just letting go of what you can't control because you're just wasting precious energy on that really aren't you absolutely and it's energy that we really need to like fight for our health I think you can spend a lot of time you know with the shoulda coulda wouldas if I'd just done this and if I had just done that and be really hard on yourself and I think acceptance 
it really is about forgiving yourself for yes. what you didn't do because of what you didn't know. Yes. And that's all part of the process of really embracing the warrior within, as I would yes. say, is that ability to be able to say, this is how it is now. Yeah. And I'm going to start with this step one now and mm. and move forward in the best yeah. way that I can. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, I know it's, it sounds a bit sort of cheesy, but I think in the last couple of years, I really feel like you have to sort of take every day as it comes. And, <laughs> you know, definitely. and it's so hard. It's so hard. You know, for somebody who previously would like to know what's happening because there's that nice bit of security and control. It's like, you know, so I think make plans, but realise that you just need to be a bit loosey-goosey and a bit flexible. And as long as the people who know and love you understand that, then, you know, it's fine. So, yeah. But again, as I say, not easy to do. You have to keep, you're always like a heavy human being, I think. And this is so true for people with a chronic illness like kidney disease. You're always a work in progress as a person until forever. And you just realise that you're going to make so many mistakes in life, more than you are going to make, not make mistakes. And it's just being brave enough to not be afraid of the mistakes and to know that you're just going to learn from them, you know, and not be afraid of failure. So you said that you were worked up for a transplant so how was that process for you it was long I think you know I'm looking back and I'm just trying to think about what I had I mean like as you probably know from being a kidney warrior lots of blood tests so reams of blood tests for the work up ECGs chest x-rays and then that all started in I think probably about August of 2019 and then um, I remember what happens is basically you have all these tests and then the transplant surgeon at the transplant hospital, mine happens to be Adam Brooks in, in Cambridgeshire, they then have to go and meet up with board of other transplant surgeons and they will review your results and then, as you know, all those peers and then basically they make a decision as a group and say, yes, Alison is is suitable to be on the transplant list. You know, we're happy with her results. We're happy with her her weight. She hasn't got any other serious illnesses. Her BMI is good or whatever. And then basically they decide, decide that. But they only meet every few weeks or whatever. And I remember I had most of my tests in like the summer of 2019. And I remember that there was one final test that I had to have, which was... Um, an echocardiogram, which is slightly different to an ECG. And then what they do is they would put you on there and then they would either get you to pedal on this bike thing to raise your heart rate, or they would inject you with a drug, which would then raise your heart rate really high, you know I mean, like exceptionally high levels. And then they would scan your heart and then see how your heart responded to that. So that was the final test that I had. And was probably one of the most important ones. But unfortunately, there was a a three-month gap between me having one test and this final test, literally because it was such a much-needed test for so many people, the waiting list for it was really long. So I didn't have that until, like, the December. 
And I remember feeling really frustrated about, you know, not getting on the list. So I was really keen to get on the list now that I knew that I needed to be on the list. So that was probably the frustrating thing. But a lot of it was having conversations with, you get assigned a transport coordinator when you go on the list or before you go on the list and you go and meet that person, which is really helpful. And they answer a lot of questions for you and explain some things about what you need to do when you're on the list. And part of that is obviously also having conversations with renal counsellors, because obviously with any chronic illness, again, you know, kidney disease, as we know, it has a big impact on your mental health. You know, it's both a physical and a mental journey, really. And you can't discount that at all. So that was the whole process. And what I found really helpful, actually, was the lady who was my transport coordinator at the time. She invited me to go to Addenbrooke's and look around the unit. And it's like, and I thought, definitely, I'm going to do that. Because I think for somebody after that point who had never been in hospital overnight, I mean, up until like, you know, my late was never had a night in hospital. So you can think about all these things that, oh, my God, what's it going to be like being in hospital and being wheeled down for an operation? And you think, oh, well, I'm having, you know, and things like that. And you can really catastrophize it, can't you? You can think because you don't know what it's like. So that was a really big thing for me. It was scary, but it's like, I feel like you do really need to embrace these things and go and learn as much about it. Because once I'd been, I walked around the transport ward, met some people, and they sort of took me down and said, oh, yeah, so you come here, and then what will happen? This is where you'd be after the operation. And then they took me down and said, like, this is where you'd come each week or so after the transplant to have blood tests and stuff. And it's like, once I saw it, I just felt so much more relieved and thought, oh, okay, I understand it now. I don't feel scared. That was really good. So I think embracing all those different things and learning as much about stuff as you can really helps you have a better frame of mind about what's going to happen. I say a lot that knowledge is power and what you've said highlights that it really does make a difference that it might not be easy to hear it or to see it or go through that experience but actually knowing it helps helps you come to terms with whatever it might be helps you to move forward so we've talked about the workup process for your transplantation yeah but I know that you are actually on dialysis yes so how was the process of as we've talked about you lived a normal life for a number of years and then your function dropped. How was the process of going on to dialysis and how did you choose what type of dialysis that you went on? Did you have the choice or were you automatically put onto a type of dialysis? Yeah, I mean, I've, in retrospect, I feel really fortunate that I had a choice which one to go on because I've spoken to people since and there's so many people who from their hospital, they said, right, give it a go, you need to go on dialysis, you're going to be doing in-centre hemodialysis three times a week until you have your transplant. And that was all that was offered to them. Whereas I was fortunate that the hospital I was at, they basically took me through all the steps and said, "There's here are the options. It's basically in-centre hemodialysis, hemodialysis at home, peritoneal dialysis, which you can either do overnight on a machine, or you can do manually throughout the day so that was good and, and originally I think 
I'm going to be honest, I had a little bit of a visceral response to when I first saw somebody with a peritoneal dialysis catheter. I just had a bit of a visceral response and I think that's really normal. And I think maybe I let that sort of affect me a little bit. I sort of almost assumed, right, well, okay, it's going to be hemodialysis. And to be honest, at the time, I don't think the thought of having to needle myself worried me. And I really knew from the beginning that I really wanted to go for doing hemodialysis at home because my independence is like really important to me. And there were so many things that I felt that I was going to miss out on, but I thought, well, it goes back to getting is it to control. And it's like, well, if I could do it at home, I feel good about myself. I've got some input into my healthcare. You know, I could be at home in the comfort of my own home stuff. So if you do hemodialysis, you need to have a fistula, which generally would be in your arm. I know you can actually have it in your leg, but a fistula, which is where you do a small operation and they fuse a vein and an artery in your arm. And basically after about eight weeks of recovery, then they'll see if that actually is working. And then that was where they would place two needles in to do the dialysis. And, you know, hemodialysis is, I think, known as like the gold standard of dialysis. So that hadn't worried me. You know, so that was what I had planned. I went to have a scan for the fistula. So basically, if you can imagine an ultrasound scan that you would have maybe when you're pregnant or anything else, a bit of jelly, not on the belly, but on the arm. <laughs> and they would put jelly on the arm and then they would expect literally just scan you and just see how good your veins and your arteries are. You know, so generally they'll sort of start at the wrist because this is the best way to start here. And then they'll look down here and they did the scan. And, the, and this is done basically by a vascular surgeon because they would actually perform the operation for doing the actual fistula. And they, they were sort of looking and said, well, they, they weren't particularly brimming with confidence about because I'm quite small, but not always the case, because a lot of people who are bigger than me also have this problem. The veins weren't, they weren't particularly happy. So they said, well, you know, we probably could do it, but, you know, it's not looking that great. And then one of the doctors just said to me, have you ever thought about peritoneal dialysis? And I think because of this visceral response I'd had to it, I sort of had an immediate reaction and I just said to her, no, no, I can't do that. And then they sort of, I'm so thankful really, because they said, well, you know something, and they explained about a bit more about it. And I hadn't really had as much information about PD as I had about HD from my nephrology team. And they explained it to me. And it's like, my husband, luckily, my husband was there. And we asked a few questions. And I thought, you know something, I really need to think about this. So literally, I went home that weekend, did some research into it, did comparisons of HD versus PD. And did the whole pluses and minuses list of both, you know, talk to my husband about it. Because the dialysis that you do, to certain degrees, any dialysis that you do will have an impact on you, but also your family and people you live with, you know. So I wanted to be sure that Phil had input to that because it would affect him as well. And because um, I was really keen to do the, and I thought, no, actually, I'm going to do PD. And I decided to, that I'm going to do the APD, automated peritoneal dialysis, which is basically where you plug yourself into the machine for generally about eight hours a night. And I wanted to check with him and say, you know, this is going to affect you because we're going to have a device in our bedroom, which it's pretty good, but it makes a bit of a low hum. And there might be alarms that go off, which could, so his sleep is going to be affected and, and things like that. So we talked about it and I said, okay, I'm going to go for that. And then literally, 
told my nephrologist a few days later when I saw him and said, right, I've changed my mind, I want to do PD. And I was really pleased. It's like, okay, that's great if you're sure. And within about a week's time, I was booked in and I had the catheter put in, had a night in hospital and then came home. Yeah, and in a few weeks' time, I'd healed up. I uh, And then I went and did my peritoneal dialysis training, which is basically four days where you go every day and learn how to use the machine, sit on the machine for a couple of hours so you get used to actually having a whole treatment. My husband, Phil, was there. He got taught how to use the machine as well, so it's good to have a partner to back you up. And then, yeah, so that was the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then the Friday of that week, once I'd finished my training, the healthcare company delivered my machine, Bob, which I called Bob, and um, <laughs> and all my stock. And that was basically, yeah, it. And then, you know, I think it was Saturday the 14th of March. That was my first time that I put myself up and dialysed. And how has peritoneal dialysis been for you? I have to say, for the 18 months that I was on it, it was amazing. And I was, I'm just still so amazed at how, you know, just by using your peritoneum to dialyse through just blows my mind how simple, but not simple it is. It worked really well. I mean, I remember the first night having the cry, basically, on my bed and kind of my husband sort of saying, doesn't seem really fair, does it? But then I cried, I felt better and put myself up. You know, so that it worked really well. I felt healthy. It was dialyzing me. It was keeping me healthy. It was getting rid of the toxins. It was getting rid of the fluid. The great thing about doing it overnight was, you know, you just sort of plug yourself in and it gets done and you get up and you've got the day to yourself. And, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I would always say to people, if you get told you need to do dialysis, definitely really do look into peritoneal dialysis. Yeah, it just worked marvellously. And even, unfortunately, now at the moment, I've had to swap to in-centre hemodialysis. But, you know, something, even though I had peritonitis three times last year, which I contracted because of my PD catheter, I would still go back to it again if I could, because it just, yeah, it works so well. And it really does help you to feel independent. And it's really gentle on you because you're doing it every day. You just feel much more balanced all the time. And uh, yeah, so peritoneal dialysis is amazing. So you said that you got peritonitis three times. But, yes. But you would still go back to PD. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, I, I would, I think, I think now definitely because I remember the first time I went in with peritonitis, it was August of 2021. And I remember being in for five days and like throughout that, it was a real sort of roller coaster. And I just said to the doctors, look, peritoneal dialysis is just so good for me. It works so well for me, both physically and mentally. Please do as much as you can to make sure that I walk out of here with my catheter. And fortunately, because I got into them quickly, they pumped me through full of antibiotics they were able to identify the bug and get the right antibiotics and then treat it. And I was discharged with my catheter, which was amazing. Yeah, and even though all the things that I've been through, I think being in hospital 
probably is the worst thing that happened. I think it's it was more. I think I went through more emotional pain when I was in hospital because you don't realise a hospital's not a hotel, is it? It's no, absolutely not. I love my I love my bed and I like being looked after, but actually that's not you know. And I I, I never I was quite fortunate. I never remember having any real physical pain, even though you know peritonitis is an infection of your peritoneum. So I feel really fortunate, but I just the things I think about now is those three times I was in hospital and just the emotional things you go through of being institutionalised and the tests and the up and down of you think you're going to be discharged the next day, but then, oh, no, you're not, and then things like that. But I think, yeah, I think I still would go back to PD, really. But I've, I think because when I got peritonitis for the second time or basically it hadn't cleared up from the first time, maybe that's the case, I went in sort of early October and that was when I was in for two weeks and ultimately during that time I had to have the catheter taken out because they just couldn't get rid of the infection and they just said, well, by still having the catheter, you know, we're keeping the bug inside, we need to get that out. And so basically in October I came out of hospital for two weeks without my PD catheter and then what was worse, I had a this catheter in my chest, this, this like a tunnelled catheter in my chest. And I basically had gone from being at home in safety and security of my home, dialysing, looking after my health, to then go to the, the complete opposite, which was, okay, now you're going to have to go to your local hospital three times a week and sit on a machine that's going to clean your blood for the next for four hours, three times a week. And just like the shock of that and the loss of independence and then, you know, frustration about having my life restructured and it's like, okay, well, for these three times a week, you have to go and do this. There's no flexibility. You have to go and do this. And that was a real, yeah, that was a real culture shock for me, definitely. And being on hemodialysis, I have found personally, was hard to get used to mentally and also physically because in comparison to PD it is a quite harsh treatment works really well but because you're doing it three times a week and not every night it has to work a lot harder so it's just tougher on your body basically and you know a lot of people get reactions to HD and for me it was basically the first three months of doing it I you know I would come off the machine and then have this thumping headache, which I couldn't get rid of with a painkiller. And so I would have to go to have my hemodialysis and then go home and lie down in my bedroom for the rest of the day because I just felt so awful. And that was hard. So that's why. And, you know, I originally, you know, I'd had my PD catheter taken out in the October. And I said to my doctors, like, I would really want to go back onto PD as soon as I can. And they said, okay, well, then, you know, we like people to have some time away just to allow for healing and making sure the bug's definitely gone. But I said, well, look, how long before I can go back onto PD? He said, well, about 10 weeks. I said, great. And so even though I started the hemodialysis in October, I had this little lifeline, which was on the 10th of December last year, so 2021, I was going to go back into hospital and have another catheter put in my peritoneum. So ultimately, 
A few weeks after that, later in December, I could technically restart PD. You know, it's like, great. So I had this, yeah, as I say, like this lifeline, I just think, great, I can push through and I can cope with this hemodialysis for the next 10, 12 weeks because I know that I've got PD I can go back to and I'm going to be back at home and, you know, my life will be back to normal, you know, my version of normal. And had the catheter put in, that was all working fine. And then literally between Christmas and New Year of that last year, so 2021, I started getting some stomach pains and, and you know, sort of stuff. I was like, okay. And, but, and I was due to go on New Year's Eve, so 31st of December 2021, back to my hospital. And they were going to do some refresher training for me because I was going to go back on the APD machine. And so I went along there. And I'd mentioned to my nurses that I'll get this summer cake, but I went along, was about to start my training. And then basically what they would do is they would put the peritoneal fluid into your, into your peritoneum and then sit you on the machine for a couple of hours and then take it out again. And they put the fluid into my belly, went in fine through the, through the catheter that had been put in a few weeks before. And um, then about half an hour later, one of the nurses said, oh, let's just, because you get a bit of a stomach ache, let's just take the fluid out and see how you are. Great. And she did that. And basically, no fluid came out. And suddenly, I was in the terrible pain in my stomach. My temperature went up to 39 degrees, which is way above a fever. And I was also, like, shaking uncontrollably. It's like, okay, right. And then literally, they just sort of got into action and blood tests and chest x-ray, abdomen x-ray, started putting some broad-spectrum antibiotics into me and then within a couple of hours they said we're going to need to admit you so I was admitted on New Year's Eve Eve, and basically said yeah it looks like you've got peritonitis and we're going to have to take the catheter out so the disappointment for me of you know I'd had like my first catheter in for 18 months that had to come out that was a that was a blow but then I thought well I'm getting my second catheter in you know, and for that to only last three weeks and never be used for dialysis before it got taken out again, you know, it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that was a real blow. And then, you know, being admitted to hospital on New Year's Eve and, you know, watching the fireworks over Stevenage from my bed, yeah, that was tough. And knowing that I would have to stay on hemodialysis, it was keeping me alive, but it was making me feel just so rubbish. But yeah, so based on all those things that happened to me last year, I would still go back onto it. But one thing that has changed is that before I got discharged from the hospital in this new year without my catheter, you know, but still with my hemodialysis catheter, I had sort of changed my mind about things. And the doctor said to me, you know, yes, I think you could go back onto PD and you might not get an infection, but maybe just think about what your priorities are. And I said, yeah, okay. My priorities are to be well enough to be on the transplant list so I can be available for a transplant. I said, yeah. So maybe what you need at the moment, Alison, is a bit of consistency. And, you know, even though HT is tough at the moment, we could try and make that better for you. Let's keep you on hemodialysis. It's keeping you healthy. 
And that means that you spend as much time on the list, not getting infections and to be taken off the list. So focus on that. So I had to really think, yeah, okay, what's my priority? Yeah, that is my priority. So I thought, yeah, okay, we're going to stick with the hemodialysis and, you know, carry on that until I get transplanted. Wow, that really has been a journey. Like, you've been through (laughs) so much. Like, that must have been so, so tough, having to come to terms with so many different changes. And, you know, you've gotten used to doing the PD at home and then that then being taken away and then having to deal with side effects that you weren't used to dealing with, with HD and having a different catheter. That is a lot, you know, that takes a lot of strength, inner strength to be able to cope and to be able to push through. And you're so positive and you have such an amazing outlook on life and you really, honestly, and when I say this, it isn't to be cliche-ish, but really are a warrior, like to be able to push through that is Mm. really incredible. And my hat's off to you, like I'm tipping my hat. (laughs) (laughs) So whilst waiting on the transplant list, I know that you had an opportunity for a transplant which didn't work out. So tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah, it was when I was in hospital for the second time in October of 2021. so what happens is, is to be on the transplant list, you have to be as healthy as possible. And one of the times that you get deactivated from the list is if you're in hospital with something that could potentially mean that your transplant isn't successful as it could be. And having an infection where you're being treated with antibiotics is one of those cases. And I remember when I was in hospital first in August, the doctor said to me, right, you've got an infection. We're going to deactivate you from the transplant list. And that was sort of new information to me because I'd never been in hospital before, you know. But I said, well, okay, now that makes sense. You know, it makes sense to be the healthiest possible you can be. So I knew that was a drill, basically. So when I was admitted in October, saw the doctors the day after on their rounds, and they said, Alison, as you know, because you've got the infection, we're going to need to deactivate you from the transplant list. I said, yeah, absolutely, completely understand. Great, yeah, let's do that. And didn't think anything more of it. And then, so that was like Monday, Tuesday. And then it was decided within that first week that my infection wasn't getting any better. So I was going to be having my catheter taken out. They had to wait for my infection to get a little bit better before they could do the operation. But they would say like, that was that week. And then that Sunday, I was booked in to have the catheter taken out in the morning. Prior to that, on the Saturday morning, I got a missed call on my mobile phone. and. so, okay, but I thought, you know, I was in hospital and I was trying to sort of be disconnected as much as possible. But I thought, no, I will. people don't need, and they left me a voicemail. So I thought, you know, better check my voicemail. And it was my transplant coordinator. As soon as I heard her voice, I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I phoned her straight back. And then that's when she said to me, oh, Alison, I've spoken to your husband. Because what happens is when you're on the transplant list, they will contact you first and then other people and they'll basically, if they can't catch you, they'll leave a message and then they'll find the next person on the list and the next person on the list so they can get contact with you as soon as possible. She said, oh, Alison, yeah, I've spoken to your husband. I hear that you're in hospital. And I said, yes. And I said, you've got a kidney for me, haven't you? And he said, yes. 
And I just remember, I just remember saying, and almost, there was a little bit of pleading. It was a bit like, and there's a little glimmer of hope when she said, well, let me talk to the surgeons and they'll talk to your nephrologist on call, you know, and see where you are in your treatment and see how, you know, if it's still going to be a possibility that you could have the transplant. And, um, but ultimately it wasn't. And it basically turned out that even though I was there, there was a doctor with her team, uh, I heard the doctor say to the team, please get Addison deactivated from the list. So I knew it had been instructed. Somebody at the hospital did not contact Adam Rooks to take me off the list. So, oh. so there's me on Saturday oh, no. morning just sitting there and thinking of, it's like, oh, of all the, it could have been, all the things it could have been. And I think it really hit me. I remember having a phone call with a friend and just, I hadn't, I didn't cry to start with I think I was just a bit too shocked and believe me I cried very easily <laughs> but I remember me too <laughs> I didn't I didn't yeah, I didn't cry about it and I, you just think well what's you know that's a bit weird but I remember whatsapping a friend of mine on video that night and as soon as I told her that was the catalyst for me to like absolutely sob about it and I'm so glad I had that conversation and told that person so that was tough, but I was glad I did it because I think vocalising it to somebody just, I think it just got rid of so much emotion. And it was, I know I, cry, I do cry easily, but I just realised that you just have to be able to cry because you just need to get things out, don't you? Yeah. Um, and I think, again, the next time I remember it really hit me hard was when I was being wheeled down to surgery on the Sunday morning to have the catheter taken out. It's like, well, I could have been being wheeled down to surgery to have a transplant, but instead I'm not having that. I've got to live with the knowledge that I could have been having that. And you can't unremember that, can you? you you're always going to know that. And the fact that I was having this surgery, and not only was I not having a transplant, I was having this dialysis that I just would have been such a, positive impact on my life taken away from me and then given something that scared me and I didn't want you know so all those things were going on you know all those different emotions so I think that's probably one of the lowest points in my whole kidney journey over the last few years much worse than being diagnosed I think probably in retrospect yeah that being Something that, you, you know, you wanting, you know, I've been on the list since January 2020, you've been wanting this thing, your life has been revolving around this phone call coming and you probably fantasise about it and you think how it's going to be. You think it's going to be, I'll be at home and then the phone will ring and then I'll get my bag and we'll go down to the hospital and it's not that, it's you get offered it and you can't take it and you, you never think that's going to happen, do you? You just think, bish, bash, bosh, this happens, that happens. You get the phone call, you say, yes, I'll have the transplant, I'll get in the car. You go, you have the transplant, you recover, and you feel like that's the end of the story. But obviously, that's very often not the case. It is amazing the impact that the different things can have on, yeah. your, on your mental health along this Kidney Warrior journey. 
Yeah. I mean, to go through that experience and for you, when you described about actually when you were being wheeled down for the operation and it could have been so different having to come to terms with the lot. It's kind of a grieving process in a sense that, you know, the loss of what could have been compared to what actually happened. These things can take a massive toll on your Mm -hmm. mental health as a kidney warrior. And I know that mental health is something that you are very passionate about for kidney warriors and in the advocacy work that you do, paying it forward and encouraging people in their mental health. So tell me more about what you're doing in terms of mental health and helping others. Oh, absolutely. Before I do that, I just want to say it's so spooky because you just used a word that my renal counsellor used and it was so helpful. It's like you are grieving, you are mourning what could have been. It's so lovely to hear you say that word completely unprompted because when she used that word, it was a very big moment for me because it's like, yes, you know, and we all know that any sort of grief is so, you know, it's such a big thing for anybody, whatever, however, whatever format it takes. And it's like, so thank you very much for recognising that that is what, exactly what the, the process is. You are in a phase of mourning, definitely. So, yeah, so I think, back to your, your question, I think awareness is so important, I think, because I'd like to think to myself that by people like you, Dee, doing your podcast and raising awareness and the small things that I do on a daily basis, I just feel like if I can talk to people and just make them aware of kidney disease so that they then go get tested, you know, for it, and then they can be aware. And then if that means that one person doesn't have to go through kidney disease or, or you know, go through dialysis or a transplant it just feels so much worth it yeah we have to be telling our stories and connecting with people you know so for me it takes on like many forms it could be big stuff it could be you know going along and doing a presentation great things like doing a podcast that you're doing which is amazing it can be reaching out on social media and just sharing really you know sort of very in-depth things about your story, you know, about your journey. You know, for me, it's not being afraid to show pictures of me on a doing dialysis and things like that. And the people understand that. So that's really important so that they understand that. But it can be as little as just having a one-to-one conversation with somebody. That's raising awareness for me as well. I think those are the really important conversations. Absolutely. Because those people learn something. And also, me as a kidney warrior, you know, I learned something as well, which is really satisfying. And so I remember having this conversation where I'd been to dialysis and that particular day I'd got a cab to dialysis because my husband wasn't able to take me in the car because I wasn't feeling confident enough to drive again at the time. And I got picked up from my hospital after having my dialysis. I got in with all my stuff. I've got a blanket and I've got, you know, all my stuff that I take along to keep me occupied had my mask on and everything and I had my little lanyard thing here saying that I'm socially distancing and um the taxi driver said to me oh so you've, have you been for a, an appointment I said well actually and I'm getting really good at this I, I just thought I'm just gonna start talking about it I said well actually I've just been doing kidney dialysis and he said oh okay 
And how often do you do that? And we had this whole conversation. I said, yeah, it's three times a week, four hours at a time at that moment. And he said, oh, but you look too young to have kidney failure. <laughs> I'm kidding, dialysis. And I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's true. I mean, it does affect older people. And a lot of people in my, in my dialysis centre are, you know, a lot older than me. But there are a lot of people who are my age. There are a lot of people who are younger. younger. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't realise that. So that was good. But then the added bonus to that was then he opened up and told a story. And he said, oh, yeah, my dad died earlier this year from kidney failure. So I was not expecting that. And it's like, I thought, well, okay, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. What happened? And he, he basically told me that before the pandemic, his dad had been diagnosed with kidney disease and the dad had been told that he had 60% function, which obviously is not good, but, you know, treatable. And the hospital had wanted him to go back for some checkups, just to keep an eye on his kidney function. And because of the pandemic, like a lot of people at the time were scared to go out or to to go to a hospital so his dad didn't go to his appointment and then he said well a year later he had gone from 60 percent to five percent in all that time Wow! because he hadn't gone to his appointment you know hadn't you know been having sort of treatment or anything like that been looked after and it's like and I was like I'm so pleased I had that conversation because I've learned something you know, and I've been exposed to somebody else's journey. And hopefully he's also learned something as well, you know, because there's a lot of preconceived ideas about kidney disease and things like that, you know. So because people will say to me, I said, oh, yeah, I'm doing dialysis because I've got kidney failure. And it's like, oh, oh what's it, both of your kidneys? You know, it's like people. Yeah. Always like, ask well, that question. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, both the kidneys have failed. You know, it's like. And it's like, was it? And I, I laugh at that, but I think to myself, yeah. And it just really shows you people that don't know. people don't really. It's not on their radar, and I think it needs to be, definitely, because so many people who've got the disease they don't know about it until dialysis is the next option, really. So, yeah, I just think anything that you can do that, if you've got a strength, so obviously your strength is talking to people doing communicating and things like that anything that you can do that you want to do to spread awareness I just think is amazing and it hasn't got to be because some people don't want to talk on social media and things like that that's fine but some people want to go and shake a bucket outside their train station or, or, or their local supermarket and that's good as well so every bit that you do is so important and also just being really open with everybody that you know about it because I think I got to a point where I thought yeah, there's so many people in my life who don't know that I've got kidney disease because, you know, it hadn't really affected me. But I think once I knew I was starting dialysis and was on the transplant list, I thought that was my little moment to actually be really open with people and say, hey, guys, this is what's happening with me. This is what it means for my life. And um, that was good for me. And I think being open about it with people and then they show interest and then, you talk to them about it and they learn about what it's like to have kidney disease, you know, and yeah, and they probably, and then hopefully they'll be more likely to look for symptoms. That means that they can go see their doctor and get diagnosed really quickly. I think it's really powerful what you've said, because I think sometimes people 
underestimate or they don't put a lot of value on those one-to-one opportunities or people think that if they're not doing something like a podcast or something that's like really really public that Mm -hmm. they're not doing a lot but actually it is those one-to-one conversations it is those interactions it is being able to open up a little bit because as you said not everyone is comfortable or confident to open up to the level that yourself or myself is because we're putting ourselves out there on social media you know on the internet yeah but even if it is that one-to-one conversation with that one individual you don't know the impact it could have on that individual or they can take that information and tell someone else who tells someone else so you telling one person could potentially you know one-to-one conversations or to a group it could lead to hundreds even thousands of people finding out and you know there's a saying that says each one teach one so it is really taking the every opportunity that you can to raise awareness it's such an important point you could literally save someone's life by just mentioning even if it's a five minute conversation to say you know take care of yourself you know drink more water you know the the kind of tips that we advise everyone to do you know get your blood pressure checked you know get your urine checked and you never know you might just save a life so yeah. I really think that what you've said is so powerful and so important and let's not underestimate the power of one person to yeah. impact and and help other people mm. so what advice would you give to somebody who's just been diagnosed with kidney disease yeah that's a really good question and I think it's really helpful for me to then look back over the last couple of years and think about what I've learned. I think the things I would think back is really look after your mental health and whatever form that takes, you know, and I, I would really urge people to reach out to a counsellor and if you're able to a renal counsellor because they really do understand they are a counsellor but they also a therapist but they also understand the whole nuance of what you go through when you you've got the disease and you're facing dialysis and a transplant because I was thinking about this the other day Dee and I just think in the time that I've had the disease there's been more emotional pain that I felt than any physical pain I've never had really any pain from my kidney disease you know I feel very fortunate but it's the emotional pain you know so I think really look after your emotional health reach out to people talk about how you're feeling and then like we spoke about earlier knowledge is power one of the things that I would have loved to have done before I started dialysis was to have a conversation with somebody who was with kidney disease and then find out their day-to-day experiences of doing the different types of dialysis you know because one of the things I have done since last year was doing some work with a kidney organization and they've realized that a lot of people don't know about or don't consider doing at-home dialysis be it peritoneal or hemodialysis because they don't know about it and so they go down the in-center HD route but 
you know, there are so many benefits of doing your dialysis at home. It's not for everybody, but there are benefits. So what I've been doing, involved in is a, a peer support group with some other kidney patients. And then what happens is people who are newly diagnosed can contact the organisation and then be paired up with somebody, a peer, and then have a phone call or a Zoom call with them and ask them questions. You know, so I had my first one a few weeks ago and this gentleman was due to start dialysis in a few months you know so he was looking into different dialysis and wanted to do home dialysis so my job as a peer was just to say to him here's my experience and obviously not give any medical advice because I'm not a medical person but here's my experience I've done PD on the machine this is how I found it I've done PD manually CAPD this is how I found it and I think just having those conversations with people who've been through what you're going to be going through, it's so good. You can just really understand the day-to-day nuances of being on dialysis. I have to say doctors and nurses are amazing, but they don't live, they don't know how it feels to have, you know, these boxes of medical equipment in their house and how that affects you mentally because you feel like you're living in a hospital. And they don't, you know, know how it feels to, you know, when you're doing manual PD, have to walk around with two litres of fluid in your stomach and look at yourself in the mirror and think that, you know, as a woman, you look like you're in your first trimester of pregnancy, you know. So those are some of the negative things. But there's so many positives of doing home PD and home hemodialysis. But I just think speaking to somebody who is walking the walk and talking the talk, it just makes it so much easier to make a decision about which route you go down, whether it's home dialysis or in-centre dialysis. Having those conversations is really important, definitely. So, yeah, mental health and just talking to people. Thank you. That's really, really good advice. Thank you. So if anyone wants to contact you or follow you online or social media, where can they find you? Yes, thanks, Dee. So my preferred sort of place that I sort of post is on uh, LinkedIn. I just find it's it's a, a really untapped sort of place to sort of talk about things. And I just, I really like the tone of, of it. So yes, yeah, so basically look me up, Alison Lawrence on uh, LinkedIn and uh, connect up with me. And uh, I share my sort of, I usually share a couple of stories or images and things a week, mostly around kidney disease and my sort of story and hoping to inform people through that but a lot of it it can be promoting really good campaigns you know that kidney organizations are doing for example for world kidney day this year kidney care uk were running a campaign for people to write to their mp about improving mental health services for kidney patients so that would be something that i would share to encourage people to do that but also around broader topics around mental health and dealing with how to you know cope with having a chronic illness so yeah so if that's something that interests you that's where LinkedIn is where you can reach me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. You truly are a warrior. You've been through so much adversity but come through it and like I said you just have this positivity and strength about you. You're absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me, dear. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. 
And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.